If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. Father, it's a great occasion that we're able to gather together here today. And Father, we know that every Sunday that we gather together, we do so, Lord, because of the resurrection of Christ. But Father, we've come to the time of the year where our focus and attention is upon the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for this wonderful message of hope, the message, Lord, of salvation that has gone throughout the world. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to that message Faithful always in declaring it, faithful Father, and living it out. Holding it up, Father, before the world as being the only resolution to the myriad of problems that the world faces and that each individual faces. Father, we ask now that as we continue our study in your word, that, Father, you would bless us, that you would bless uh, our understanding of your word, that you would enable us, Father, to be able to take these truths and apply them to our lives. As always, Father, we are thankful for your patience with us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1, it reads, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness... He will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Now, just for reference real quick here, my servant is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. He is, as the Word of God holds up to us, the quintessential servant. He is the most perfect example. And this is to be reproduced in all of us as believers, for those of us who've placed our faith and trust in Christ. This service is to be unostentatious. It's a great word that you can use when you're with friends. That means that you're not, it's not gaudy or flamboyant, loud or brash. It is really an unself-advertising uh, kind of example. In fact, if you look at verse 2 there, there are three descriptive phrases that are used about him. In other words, he will not shout. The second one, he will not cry out. And thirdly, he will not raise his voice in the streets. And there's significance to those terms. The word shout suggests that which startles or perhaps a dispute, and that would be indicated by the passage over in Matthew. The the term or the phrase cry out indicates an attempt to dominate or to shout others down. The third term or third phrase, which is raise his voice or make his voice heard, may suggest uh, self-advertisement. So the intention here with putting all these together is to create a cumulative emphasis on a quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening ministry. In other words, the ministry of Christ, it was a great threat to those who did not or had not placed their faith in God. But it wasn't driven by his personality. It wasn't driven by his aggressive stance in the way that he said the things that he said or the way that he carried himself. He was very unassuming. He was really very quiet. He allowed his teaching. He allowed the authority that he had in communicating the word of God to speak for him. And as a result, obviously, it was a very powerful thing when he would come and when he would teach. But he was a servant. 
And he was always pointing to God. He came to reveal to us God the Father. And that's why he was not bringing this attention by, again, the way he displayed himself to others. He wanted to point to God the Father. And what it says about him here in this passage, we look at verse 3, is to this servant, to this individual, nothing is useless. And that's what it means when it talks about the bruised reed. However, it came to be crushed is not the point, which in this state is useless as a support or for anything else. And this would basically be like the reeds that grow along the marshlands that you see waving in the wind. So it's very fragile, uh, very beautiful to look at a large group of them together and, and as they kind of flow in the breeze and are moved by, uh, by the tides. But so the idea is that when, a, when, it, when this reed is bruised or crushed, you know, it, it's really not worth anything. It just kind of kind of droops there and hangs over. But he's using, he's using that as an example of an individual. Again, an individual who's been bruised, an individual who's been crushed. And he's trying to describe to us, I believe here, the great grace and the gentleness and the, and the caring of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That there's a gentleness as, as he looks at human beings, as he looks at us. I know a lot of times we talk about you know, the, the two-sided coin of the love of God and the wrath of God and God's judgment on sin. And all those things are true. But what we also need to remember is that for many individuals, maybe it's for a very high percentage of them, when, even when individuals live in blatant and open sin or rebellion against God, it is not unusual to find those individuals have also been crushed by the world. They've been crushed by what others have done to them. By, by others who've committed sins against them. That, that is the, what, what we see. Oftentimes we, we hear stories of the individual who's like the bully. And the bully is, you know, the bully in school who's always picking on the individuals and making life miserable for them. And then as someone gets to know that individual, maybe trying to reach out and help that individual, you begin to find out their background. That that individual has been bullied. That individual has been rejected. That individual has been crushed by whether it's his family or whatever the case may happen to be. And so this is a very bruised, crushed individual. And so he's lashing out of the world by bullying others because of the pain and the sorrow that is deep in, inside that individual. That never excuses what they do. No one's ever saying that somehow that what they're doing is now not bad because of their background. We still want to hold them responsible for how they're choosing to respond to uh, what life has handed them. But here the emphasis is on how Jesus approaches us, how Jesus deals with individuals. And then, of course, after the bruised reed, he talks about the smoldering wick. And basically the idea here is that there is nothing that is too far gone towards extinction, such as a smoldering wick. And so an example of this is seen in the life of Peter. So if you would, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. And I want to work our way through this passage and see how Christ dealt firmly and very gently with Peter. John 21, and I'll begin reading in verse 14. In 14 of John 21, it reads this way, This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? 
He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you, were old, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken these things, he said to him, follow me. Now there's a lot there in our reading that gets lost in the English. And so we're going to delve into a little bit of that so we can really grasp the depth of the conversation that Jesus Christ is having with Peter. But I want you to understand that Peter here is, he's that bruised reed. He feels like a smoldering wick. His usefulness is gone. He is useless. He's ashamed. He's broken. Most individuals recognize immediately when they read this passage, and it should not go unnoticed that Peter denied Jesus three times. And so three times, Jesus asked Peter to affirm his love for him. Of Peter's three denials, when you read through the passages of Scripture that talk about that or describe that, the very first denial on the night that Jesus was on trial, Peter just gave a very simple denial that he didn't know him. The second time, when he was kind of confronted about being a follower of Jesus, it was a little more intense. In fact, he used an oath to basically say that he did not know Jesus. But if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. You can keep your finger in in John 21, because we're definitely going to come back to that. But turn to Mark, chapter 14, and I'm going to begin to read in verse 69. Mark, chapter 14, beginning in verse 69. And it reads this way, And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. So when it says there in, um, uh, when, he, when, he, when, when it was, he was accused of being one of them, and he denied it in verse 70, that's the second time that he denies Jesus. So now they continue to press, saying that he had an accent, and they could tell he was from Galilee. And so in verse 71, it reads this way. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time, the roaster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Now, what I wanted to focus on was this third time, where in verse 71, it says he began to curse and swear. Now, we know that Peter was a fisherman. He was kind of a a calloused, rude, crude kind of a man. Uh, He he spoke oftentimes before he thought things through. Uh, He was a man of action. Again, sometimes he would act before he thought things through. He was kind of a brute of an individual in both his personality and in the way that he carried himself. himself. And so we need to ask ourselves, so what is going on here? What is this invoking of curses? What is going on here? 
was I was reading through several books trying to get a handle on and getting a good sense of, of what was happening at that moment. One academic says this, Peter's reply involves two intensifying actions, cursing and swearing. The swearing is simply his willingness to take an oath that he does not know Jesus. However we have the cursing, Jesus is the object of the curse. What we have here is that Peter cursed Jesus and took an oath that he had no personal acquaintance with him. So basically what's going on here, if you kind of put it in the vernacular of today, is you see an individual and someone says, I know that not only do you know him, you follow that guy, and you basically shout out a bunch of expletives, I don't know this blankety-blank-blank individual, I don't know what you're talking about, I swear to you my mother's grave, not only do I not know this guy, I've never met him. That is the kind of denial that Peter's giving here. Peter, who spent three years, at least three years of his life, living with Jesus, following Jesus, hearing him teach. He's seen the miracles. He was part of the group. Peter, James, and John were taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus showed him his glory. And he now reverts to this. Peter's denial was loud. Again, it included a cursing of Jesus. He was being emphatic. It was an absolute rejection that he had ever had anything to do with Jesus, much less that he knew him. And we all know that most likely, as we kind of look at this whole thing, Jesus is on trial, this movement that Peter's a part of, this wonderful man he's gotten to know, and, and he has seen him display God. It's all falling apart. Remember, he's, he's not understanding what all this is leading up to. Jesus constantly has been teaching them, and we know from hindsight, and we understand the things that Jesus has been saying to them and teaching him, but Peter's not getting it at that moment. He just sees all of it coming down. The man he loves has been arrested. He's, he's going to trial. He's, he's been crucified. He's been buried. And then, of course, it's kind of embarrassing. And it's, it's a great thing, but also embarrassing that he's been raised from the dead because Peter loves him, but man, I kind of, kind of spoke a little too soon there. I should, have, I should have stood up for Jesus, and he, and he didn't. And I'm convinced that's all that was on his mind at this moment, was how could Jesus even look at him? He, he can't help, Peter can't help but be there because he loves Jesus, but he's just filled with shame. His head is hanging the entire time. So go back to John 21. I want you to look at the details of this conversation that Jesus had with Peter. There's several notes there that you have, and I've just done this so that it can help you to kind of keep in mind and track with me as we work through this conversation. So in verse 15, it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? So the word for love there is agapao. We, we are familiar with agape love. There's different Greek words for love, and most of us are familiar with three of the main ones. And agape is the main one. This is how God the Father loves God the Son. This is how God loves us. This is how we are commanded to love each other. This is a love that is of the will. That's where you determine that you will love someone. There's no, there's no emotional element in it. It doesn't mean that it's devoid of emotions, but it's not based on emotions. So there are emotions that may accompany it, but the bottom line is where if you decide you're going to love someone, even if they reject you, that's agape love. 
where, where you are willing to sacrifice, you're willing to do whatever, you're willing to be inconvenienced, whatever the cost, for the, the well-being and for the sake of another individual. Many individuals, not knowing this, love their children that way. When these screaming little beasts come into the world, you know, they're very demanding. And so we have to give up sleep. We have to now give up large portions of our income. Uh, our entire schedule has changed for the next many, many years. Uh, and the costs just keep going up. They keep growing. We have to keep buying them more clothes. And then along with that, they don't do what we say. And so we have to always keep on top of them and correct them and try to do things to help them grow into responsible adults. And there's just all this inconvenience and expense and cost that goes with that. What most people have done, though, most people have decided before the child is born that they love the child. Now, they usually don't, they don't do this. You know, it's not like the wife comes home and tells the husband, I'm pregnant and then they both say, we now swear we will love this child regardless of what they do. They don't say that. It's just assumed. That's the normal, natural stance. That's agape love. They don't say, and they don't think, well, we'll see what happens when the kid's born. I mean, if they love us, then we'll love them back. All right? We don't do that. We decide we're going to love them regardless. When, uh, when your child is Screaming as you hold your child. We don't go, still? We don't do that either. All right? Because again, it's this, it's a, we have determined we're going to love that. So that's the word that Jesus uses here. Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you have an agape kind of love for me more than these? And of course, the more than these is referring to the other apostles that are there, or the disciples that are there. So when Peter responds, he responds a little differently. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the word that's used there in the Greek language is a form of the word phileo, which is a brotherly kind of love. It is, it is a uh, kind of a, a conditional kind of love uh, that, are, that we, you would have for a very dear friend. Still, there may be many carryovers between those two kinds of love and expression. But the idea is, is you love them, they love you, I, I love you like a friend. But, but it's a little different. You know, I, I have my friends and I love my friends like friends, but I don't love them like I love my wife or like I love my kids or my grandkids. There's a, there's a higher level of commitment to them. No matter how high of a commitment level that I have toward my friend, my commitment level to my family is higher. It's much greater. And so what, what Peter says is, I, I, can't, I can't say that I love you with agape love, but I, I love you like a friend. And you know why he can't say, I love you with an agape love? Because in his mind, the very first thing Jesus would say is, oh, really? You love me with agape love? Um, <clears throat> you remember about four nights ago, what you did? You know, that's, that's, that's what's going, through, that's what's going through, through Peter's mind. And so I'm sure he's hanging his head. He says, oh, I, you know, I, I love you like a brother. And then... Remember that when Jesus asked the question, he asked him, do you have a God-like love for me that is greater than these? And Peter doesn't even go there. I mean, what, what's he going to say? Yes. He's the one on record who denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. When he says to him, feed my lambs, the uh, meaning of that is a lamb is obviously a baby sheep. And... Um, that was fulfilled when Peter wrote the book of First Peter. In fact, uh, um, let, me, let me read to you two passages 
uh, about some of the things that Peter has said to kind of give us more context to this conversation. And back in Mark 14, verse 29, Peter said to him, which is to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you would deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. So that just kind of adds more pressure and shame to what Peter is feeling. Because again, it wasn't just something that he did, which he, he did. But when, it, when Jesus told him he would do that, he, in a very showy, kind of an arrogant, determined way, that's not going to happen. I, everyone else might do it, but I won't. Matthew 26, verse 33, Peter answered and said to him, even if all were made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, surely I say to you that on this night before the rooster crows, you would deny me three times. Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So Peter back then was claiming to have a superior agape love for Jesus. And again, we know now the rest of the story that he failed in that. And that's again why he answered to Jesus, you know that I love you like a friend. Again, Jesus' words, feed my lambs. Baby believers need to be fed with the milk of the word of God. And Peter fulfilled that when he wrote 1 Peter. So now if you would look in John 21, look at verse 16. Jesus now says a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me with agape kind of love, agapao? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. So again, Jesus asked him, do you love me with this very high level of commitment? Have you determined in your will that you're going to love me regardless? Do you have that kind of love for me? Again, Peter basically says no. Peter says, you know that I love you like a brother. He can no longer claim that he has an agapao, an agape kind of love for Jesus. Again, he can only claim that he loved Jesus as a friend. You notice that when Jesus asked the question, he dropped part of the first one. The first one, he says, do you love me more than these? This time he says, can you just say that you have agape kind of love for me? And Peter still, he can't say that. He won't say that. And so Jesus says to him, tend my sheep. The Greek word for tend here means to exercise authority and oversight. Peter fulfilled this commission as recorded in the book of Acts, which describes his activities in the early church and his authority as one of the chiefs of the apostles. And so Peter did fulfill this. And it's important to keep that in mind as we work our way through this passage here in in John. Then for the third time in John, verse 17 of John 21, Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And this time Jesus changes the word. He no longer uses the form of the word agape. He now changes it to the form of the word of love for love that Peter's been using. And so he says, Peter, can you at least say that you love me like a brother? And that's when it says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? All this shame, all this embarrassment, all these thoughts and emotions that are flooding his heart and mind as he's Put on the spot. Now again, remember the passage in Isaiah where it says a bruised reed he will not crush. He's not going to, he's not going to reject it. So Jesus is being very uh, uh, lovingly confronted. 
confronting. He's confronting him in a very love, firm, but a very gentle way. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And again, that the three times should not be lost on us. And so here when he says, can you at least say that you love me like a brother? Do you know that there's, there's never any scolding here. Now, a lot can be drawn out of the way that Jesus phrases his sentences, but he's not scolding him. He's not trying to find a way to embarrass him. This is rightly called, and many individuals point this out, this is the restoration of Peter. This man who openly declared and defied, in a sense, the the words that Jesus said, and said, I will never, everyone else might deny you, but I won't, even if I have to die with you, this just won't happen. And so this very brash, arrogant, mouthy guy is just filled with shame. And here we see that Jesus, in a very gentle, kind way, is restoring him. There's no rejection. There's no, well, Peter, we need to have a heart-to-heart. You know, I had big plans for you, and you really messed it up. And so you can still be a part of the group, but you're going to be at the end. You're going to be way over here. That's, that's not what Jesus did. That's not what he did. Jesus isn't being condescending here when he says, do you at least love me like a brother? He's not saying it as a big negative. He is, he is reaching Peter where Peter's at. He knows Peter's heart. He knows what's going on. And what we need to keep in mind is it's the same thing happens, I believe, for those of us who are believers because, you know, we do fail the Lord Jesus Christ a great deal in our lives. There's times with our words, sometimes with our actions, we deny him. Sometimes maybe it's with a the, with the lack of words. We deny Jesus. We're not living as we ought to be living as believers. We're not really spending time in his word like we should. We're not really praying like we, like we, like we know that we should. We're not really telling a lot of other people about Christ. We might accidentally let on that we go to church every now and then. But there's no thinking back and thinking through what does the word of God has to say. How do I handle this? We just let our emotions take over and we just lash out at people. We lash out at those at work. We lash out at those in our family that irritate us. We lash out at those who um, maybe in our neighborhood that are whatever it is they're doing that we don't like. And we don't act like believers. We don't treat individuals the right way. We don't, we don't want to listen to reason. We, we don't want to give anyone the benefit of the doubt. All we're concerned about is that they said this and that hurt me or they wronged me and we're just going to hold on to that. And the whole time we're doing that, we're, we're denying Christ. Keep in mind that when you and I refuse to love others the way that we're supposed to, we are making a statement. And the statement is this. I am not going to treat you in a loving way because what you've done to me is worse than what I've done to Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I would never say that. I would never verbalize that. Because remember, that's my sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. It was your sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. Remember that Jesus didn't bleed for some of us and then die for others. The only way that you and I were going to be saved is if Christ died for us. He bled and died. We don't always really buy in to the truth We don't always sense the truth of the word of God uh, with this idea that somehow that my sin deserves the death penalty. Because we can think of many other individuals who have done worse things than us 
And there are many. There are many individuals who've done things that you and I would never even imagine ourselves doing. And so we instinctively compare ourselves to them as if somehow God is like us and views our sin the same way. But he deals with each one of us as individuals. And what he said is, my standard is, this, is perfect holiness, and you've broken that. So whether you've broken it by committing murder, or whether you've broken it by being angry with somebody without a reason, you've broken that standard. What we need to, what we need to do is not be so concerned about how others may look in comparison to us or vice versa. Because we have to answer to God for our lives and for our sin. And sometimes what happens as we grow as believers, we may be overwhelmed with a sense of shame because of the wrong we've done. Sometimes, because we are so evil, we can even use our failure as an excuse to not serve the Lord. Like somehow, well, there's really not, I, you know, I, I know that I should be doing certain things, but I've just failed the Lord so much that there's just no way he can use me. That's a sinful attitude. And what we need to remember is that Jesus deals with us no differently than he deals with Peter. Will he confront us? Absolutely. But with gentleness and kindness. His goal is to restore us. His goal is to, to show his glory in us and through us. In the same way that when we raise, the way we raise our children, whether this is at home or maybe this is an incident that takes place in school or maybe on some sports team where your child has failed and they have, let's say, faced the consequences of whatever it is that, that has happened, what we want to do is we sometimes defend our children is, is we we have this idea that we don't believe that they should be thrown away. Yes, my son or my daughter has failed me, but I don't think they should be thrown away. Yes, I know my son messed up, you know, whether this football game or this football practice or whatever, but I don't believe they should be thrown away. Yeah, I know that they, yes, they did cheat on that test and that was wrong and they need to face the consequences of that, but they don't need to be thrown away. We want to see them what? Restored. We want to see them overcome. That's what we want to see. We long to see them because we love them. What Jesus has for Peter here is great love. The love of a father for a son. And he wants to see Peter restored. So then he says to him, feed my sheep. And so for the third time, he says something a little different at the end. And the sheep refers to older believers who need to be fed the meat of the word of God. Well, Peter fulfilled that one too when he wrote 2 Peter. And then in verse 18, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. And another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he will glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. So it seems that Jesus is assuring Peter that someday he would prove that he had love, agape love, for Jesus. Not more than the other disciples, but at least equal to theirs. In the future, he was going to have to give his own life on behalf of Christ. There's a book written by a Puritan called The Bruised Reed, and it reads this way. There's a quote from it I want to read to you. Are you bruised? 
Be of good comfort. Christ calls you. Do not conceal your wounds. Open all before him. And go to Christ. There is more mercy in him than sin in you. A bruised reed is someone who has been broken by their sin. God, in some way or another, has shown them their sin, and they grieve because of it. Being bruised is not necessarily God punishing us for sin, but it's also something deeper than feeling bad about your sin. God may bruise you and I for a season. Let us feel conviction for a time, but he does not break us all the way, and neither does he leave us bruised. When we are bruised, we can turn to him and find mercy. He died that he might heal our souls with the plaster of his own blood and by that death save us. And so what I want you to be assured of this morning is this. And even though we talk about God being God the judge and being a God of wrath, and he is those things, he's also a God who is filled with great love. He's a God who is extremely gentle. And as it says in the book of Ezekiel, He is not pleased with the death of the wicked. I know I am, but he's not. He gains no joy from that. God punishing evil does glorify him because it points to his holiness. It points to his justice. It points to his consistency. But because he is a God of justice, because he's a God of wrath, that then puts an accent, a spotlight on his mercy and his grace. And we have all experienced that. And the good news for you and for me as believers is God's mercies are renewed each day for us. You are going to sin again before the night comes. And God in his mercy is going to overlook your sin because of Christ. And some of us sitting here today have sinned maybe grievously we've put God on the back burner and we've ignored him and as a result we feel like there's no way back there's no way out but there is because the mercies of God are renewed every morning there is no end to God's mercy for us because of Christ I'm not big on New Year's resolutions I am big on the idea that there are times that we, we know we need to kind of start over. And I know that for many individuals, when it comes to dealing with sin, dealing with the conviction of our sin, grieving over our sin, we, we kind of we look for something to be that starting point. Well, today is a great starting point. It's a very good starting point. Where you can repent of your sin, you can confess your sin before God. Asking him once again to forgive you. We can, we can partake of communion together to be that starting point. Now again, remember that when we partake of communion, that does not forgive your sin. Don't become deluded thinking that if you confess your sin and then you partake of the elements, that now your sins are going to be forgiven. For those of us who are believers, our sins are already forgiven. But we ask God to forgive us because of the relationship that we have with him. Because we have strained that relationship and we're asking, in essence, for that restoration. So we partake of communion together to remind ourselves of the cost that was paid by Christ so you and I can be brought into the family. 
So we then can be brought into this daily experience where we, where we daily have the grace and the mercy of God poured out upon us. And so there's no need to put these things off anymore. Because no matter how grievously you have failed, no matter how bruised you may feel because of your sin and your failure, it is not the desire of God to snuff you out. You will take your next breath and the breath after that. It is God's desire to use you in the way that he used Peter, to restore you, to use you in the lives of other people, whether it's in the life of people in your family, people at work, people in your neighborhood. You may never stand behind a pulpit and preach to hundreds or thousands. You may never have your testimony aired on TV or those kinds of things. All of that is just way overblown, and it's a very American way of looking at things. But the lives of each individual that you and I love matters a great deal. And God being glorified in our restoration is an important and can be impactful in the lives of those that we love and care for. And we need to demonstrate and show them that. And so we then partake this morning together of communion. If you do not know Christ, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and embraced the gospel of Christ and confessed and repented of your sins, I would invite you to do that this morning. Again, partaking of communion is not going to save you. If you're not a believer, it's best that you leave it alone for now. Because it means nothing to God, except you're making a mockery of what has happened. Because Christ is not in the elements. He's not in the ritual. He blesses us as we obey and we remember the things that God has done for us. And we need to keep that in mind. So if you're one of those individuals who may not come to church very often, or you might say that you're a believer, don't somehow think that you're going to earn bonus points with God by, because you've taken communion. God is just not impressed with that because he looks at our heart. He's looking at your heart. And what he wants, and what it says in the book of Psalms, is a broken and a contrite heart he will in no way ever reject or despise. And so I invite you to come to him. And you can speak with me or whoever you would like to, whether it's after the service or later this week or however you would like. Be more than happy to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for those of us that are believers, I encourage you this morning to once again think back from in your memory through what you've read, studied, and learned in the Bible about the final few days of the life of Jesus Christ and the suffering that he went through and the torture that he endured and the death that he died and the burial that he was buried with, and the hopelessness of the disciples at that moment in time, and then the explosion of incredible joy and the flooding of emotions, which for Peter included shame, at the resurrection of Christ, and then having to stand face to face with the resurrection of resurrected Christ, and to be gently restored to being of great use to the kingdom because of God's mercy.